I'm Tim Gombas, and this is Faith Improvised. It's a podcast where I can think out loud and talk with friends about things that interest me. Books, films, sports, music, culture, politics, being Christian in this world, and my academic discipline, biblical studies. You're welcome to email me at faithimprovised at gmail.com or leave a voice message at the podcast homepage on anchor.fm. In this episode, I respond to some questions from last week. I talk about a great book on American evangelicalism, and I have a conversation with my good friend, Kristen D.D. Johnson, about her fascinating research on the Great Commission. But first, I've got some thoughts, and um, we'll respond to some questions I received about uh, last episode's discussion with Kristen Dumay, talking about her book, Jesus and John Wayne, which I highly, highly uh, recommend. Uh, she talked about uh, how evangelicalism, white evangelicalism, is a culture. Um, it's, uh, it's, it's a culture that um, appeals to the Bible uh, for its uh, thought patterns and ways and convictions and all of that. And uh, really, it's, it's, um, uh, but she noted how it's, it's selective. Um, the culture sort of uh, encourages us to think in certain ways and to see our thinking itself as biblical. Um, but there are so many things that we dismiss from Scripture even as we highlight other things. And I've come to see that the things that we see in Scripture are very often uh, things that we see because we um, we sort of read our culture into what uh, we think is in the Bible. Um, I came to see this uh, many years ago uh, when, um, you know, because the, the main object of my study is the Apostle Paul. And he's got loads to say, like in Colossians 2, uh, warning about not being taken captive to human tradition, and um, he equates uh, the human traditions that are passed on with um, ideologies that are woven by hostile cosmic powers uh, that insert into God's good world um, loads of corrupt ways of thinking. And so, you know, human tradition is is one of those things that you know Paul is constantly warning about. Jesus accuses um, uh, the Pharisees and others. In the Gospels of holding to human tradition and, and using Scripture to sort of support their tradition, even as they dismiss, you know, uh, sort of the weightier matters that God really wants uh, uh, His people to be following. And um, you know, the way that I was trained uh, as a conservative evangelical, we looked sort of, you know, across the, the road at Catholics, Roman Catholics, and uh, you know, Orthodox uh, people, Eastern Orthodox folks, and um, other denominations, and thought about them as holding to human tradition because they just say what their denomination says. We, on the other hand, appeal directly to the Bible, and we read the Bible right off the page. And um, that's where we get our convictions. But I've come to see that evangelicalism in America is a distinct culture, and it's really the creation of marketers it's a it's um it's a creation uh it, it's a culture that's been cultivated by figures that were building institutions and followings and so the culture has been woven specifically to have this certain way of thinking and Dumay talks about how the culture is held together by symbol and story and ritual and we have these um symbols and stories and rituals and we imagine that they come right from scripture um but they're often problematic ways of thinking. I mean, we've been given sort of certain hopes and certain fears and certain assumptions about what um, 
you know masculinity looks like what certain assumptions about what femininity looks like what the family should look like uh what what a sort of a typical church uh, service should be but all of these things come to us um as the convictions woven by human tradition and over the last uh decade or so um i came to see that this culture that we inhabit that that i inherited um, is highly problematic because of my study, not only of Paul, but especially over the last decade, um, as I've studied the Gospel of Mark, which has culminated in um, uh, a commentary on the Gospel of Mark, which is coming out early in two, uh, 2021. And uh, Jesus is talking about an alternative culture, the culture of the kingdom of God. And um, the ways of the kingdom are so countercultural. And not countercultural in the way that uh, white evangelicalism is countercultural, because really the evangelicalism that I inherited is not counterculture at all. It has basically created its own institutions and its own cultural patterns that mimic the culture and uh, where money is um, a huge operating factor and is a, is a powerful operating factor uh, in evangelicalism. Um, prestige seeking, power seeking, uh, wanting to cozy up to um, political power in America. And um, in in the Gospel of Mark, Jesus calls his disciples to take up their crosses, uh, which is, I mean, such a radical reality. And it's a political reality. Jesus tells his disciples that he's going to Jerusalem, to the capital of the nation, and he's going to die, which means he's going to lose. He's going to go into the capital and he's going to give up all power. He's going to surrender his body. And that's not only uh, to accomplish uh, salvation, he's calling his people to inhabit a kingdom uh, with the central symbol being the cross, that is self-expenditure, loss, not the accumulation of goods. Uh, he talks about how it's uh, almost impossible for a rich person to be saved. And when I read that passage, I thought, oh, okay, I'm, I'm not rich. You know, I know a lot of people who are rich and um, I'm not that. Um, but then I looked up my income uh, relative to the rest of the world and I thought, goodness, I am one of these people that Jesus is talking about. And um, how hard it is for those of us who have accumulated goods um, to imagine that we might give them up. I mean, the, the ideology that I inherited uh, told me that I earned these things. These are mine. Uh, I'm not giving them up. Um, so many other things in the Gospel of Mark that are just radically challenging. Um, leadership in the kingdom of God is supposed to be servant-oriented. And um, so much of leadership culture in evangelical culture uh, is oriented by prestige and by power. And um, for the Gospel of Mark, that is highly problematic. Um, the white evangelical culture that I inherited is largely exclusionary um, based on social class, based on um, uh, ethnicity, and based on um, uh, sexual identity. But um, the kingdom that Jesus is talking about in the Gospel of Mark is a radically inclusive reality, and it is oriented towards welcoming uh, the socially marginalized and setting them front and center in the community. and. Um, the white evangelical culture that I inherited uh, wanted clear statements on um, what we tolerate and what we don't tolerate, um, you know, who's in and who's out. And these ways of thinking 
uh, orient a culture that um, looks quite different from the kingdom of God. And um, so just to say, I, I was very struck by that aspect of her book. And I was very struck um, when I asked her about this, uh, that she said that she doesn't really hold out a lot of hope for evangelicalism, um, the kind of evangelicalism that so um, enthusiastically supported the current president. I asked her if there would be a reckoning after this presidency uh, comes to an end. And she said she doesn't really hold out much hope that that's the case. She um, has hope for individual evangelicals that they might come to see things um, differently. And I would largely agree with that. Um, it's it's difficult um, for me personally. This is sort of my ongoing existential crisis. It's difficult to know and love so many good people within evangelical culture. I mean, it's the culture that I inherited. It's the culture in which I largely operate at least in my professional life. And um, I know and love so many of these people. But um, I've come to the conclusion, based on uh, Mark's gospel and so many of the things that I've seen throughout the New Testament, that um, the evangelical culture is really um, a thoroughly paganized culture because of all these dynamics that are, are running through it. Um, like I said, money's a big one. And in Mark 4, Jesus warns about the decept, uh, the deceptivity, the deception, the deceit uh, of, of money, and especially money in the church. Um, so many problems that has caused. And I think that's only one dynamic that has made uh, this culture, the larger culture, I'm not talking about individuals within it, but it's paganized. Uh, it is apostate. And I don't think that it has much of a connection at all to the head, who is Christ, who is um, gives life to the body. Um, so anyway, that was one of the things that really struck me. And um, I've been working on a book idea coming out of my study of the Gospel of Mark um, on apostate evangelicalism, basically showing um, how so many of these dynamics um, have made the culture that we have inherited, its, its ways of thinking and its... Um, its uh, practices and its patterns, its ways of seeing and its ways of hoping um, have made it largely paganized. And that's a tragedy uh, to my mind. And I think that that's um, something that we have to reckon with. I got another uh, couple of questions from uh, Jennifer, who is a THM student at uh, Grand Rapids Theological Seminary. And um, I've had the great privilege and delight uh, to work with her and to read her work and have learned so much from her. Um, she asked about, uh, the comment and it's funny because I just a day or two before I had seen, uh, a famous, uh, preacher saying this very thing online. And I've heard this from so many, uh, famous male preachers, um, pointing to the reality that many people are leaving the church. Uh, their claim is that, um, many men are leaving the church because the church has become too feminized. And, um, all I can say is this. Anytime I hear that, my immediate thought is that's exactly what patriarchy says when it looks at any problem. Uh, the problem is uh, the feminization of the church, which to my mind is um, is ridiculous. There's probably a lot of reasons why people leave churches, and there's probably a lot of reasons why the um, churches are struggling in the United States, or are they? I don't know. Um but seeing things through that lens makes you see everything in terms of that framework. And uh, Jennifer also pointed out um, 
the the servant leadership model, or really just the service um, responsible oversight model that Jesus provides and that Paul also models. Um, that is, and it's interesting. Um, I would just point to Beverly Roberts Gaventa's book, um, uh, Our Mother Saint Paul, where Paul uses loads of uh, feminine imagery to talk about how he shapes his apostleship. Um, in Galatians, he is a woman uh, laboring. Uh, uh, he's, he's in labor until Christ is fully formed in the, uh, in the Galatians. Um, elsewhere, he talks about himself as um, a nursing mother, or he's a wet nurse. Um, he's often using paternal imagery like in Philemon, but he's often using maternal imagery uh, to talk about his um, how he carries out his apostleship with reference to the churches that he is serving. And he uses these images to sort of arrest, I think, um, his audiences, but certainly to posture himself underneath or alongside his audiences. That's one of the points I try to bring out in my book uh, that's coming out uh, early in 2021, Power and Weakness, talking about Paul's radical shift in how he conceived of ministry. Um, ministry shaped by the cross is so utterly different than ministry shaped by power. And um, seeing ministry and the church in terms of patriarchy shapes um, our behavior in the church and shapes how we see pastoral ministry inevitably in terms of power. And uh, that is destructive, it is a step away from the way of Jesus, it is a step away from certainly Paul's model. Um, Jennifer also wrote this in response to uh, last week's episode, and I just want to read the whole thing because uh, I think Jennifer said it so well. Uh, this is quoting Kristen also made a statement regarding why this patriarchal narrative is pushed so strongly among white evangelicals, and something uh, along this line uh, the narrative is claimed uh, to be so vital that, quote unquote, the whole world depends on us buying into these roles of strong male leadership and female submission. Some have even made these gendered roles as part of the gospel itself. And that is exactly the, the case. Uh, the rhetoric coming out of, say, uh, the Council on Biblical Manhood and Womanhood, and I've heard some of those figures uh, in that organization um, set patriarchy or complementarianism or female submission and male headship uh, right alongside I mean, as as important as the gospel, which is outrageous. Uh, Jennifer says, obviously, I've been researching the New Testament household codes for, uh, I think she's doing her thesis on this, and understanding this genre in light of the Greco-Roman household management traditions. Part of the reason Greco-Roman culture valued and ordered domestic life centered in male authority was, in their minds, that the whole empire depended on it. Pax Romana, the peace of Rome, and stability uh, flowed from the domestic sphere into the political and civic spheres, expanding out into the very empire. Male control and order was necessary in order to maintain peace and stability for Rome, and everyone needed to accept their place in this ordered society for stability to be maintained. I'm curious whether you see these relational patterns of strong male authority and female submission with this assumption that the whole world would crumble if we don't support these roles, as tied to evangelicalism's concern about their empire crumbling. In what ways does evangelicalism or Christian churches reflect empire over God's kingdom? How does this tie into idolatrous thinking? My goodness, Jennifer, I just think you hit the nail on the head. Um, this really first came to light for me. A couple of years ago, I read uh, Seth Dowland's book, Family Values and the Rise of the Christian Right. 
and he puts things in this co- in, in cosmic terms that um, uh, really whiteness and um, uh, patriarchy and the uh, clear gender roles basically um, have cosmic significance so that um, if that order is upset in any way, basically it threatens the very fabric of the universe. And um, I don't think that that language is too strong. And I don't think that Kristen Dumay's language was too strong, you know, as if the whole world depended on it. Um, there are, there's some kind of precedent for this. Um, Sarah and I were on the patio last night talking about uh, this very thing that gender roles and any deviation from traditional ones is basically cosmos shattering. And it brought to mind for me um, the community at Qumran. And at Qumran, this is kind of an interesting thing. One of the biggest collection of texts uh, at Qumran are texts having to do with the calendar. Because one of the biggest reasons why the Qumran community separated itself from the temple and saw the Jerusalem temple as corrupt and the priesthood as corrupt is that they were following the wrong calendar. Now, that's just not one of those issues that we get all fired up about these days. So why was this so significant? Well, for people who saw things in temple terms and in priestly terms, um, it's so important that um, the operational dynamics of things on earth match the realities in heaven on um, a Jewish worldview. And if the priesthood is using the wrong, temp, uh, the, the, wrong, the wrong calendar, everything is off. The temple is no longer the meeting point between heaven and earth. So the community left and went out to the desert, claiming it was uh, the new temple, the dwelling place of God on earth, and that they um, had a right to claim that because they were following the appropriate calendar. So, um, you know, ways of life that are lived out here on earth sort of match heavenly realities. And I think that uh, at a gut level, and we've been so informed along these lines in our culture, uh, the culture of evangelicalism, um, we feel that hierarchical uh, family ordering and gender ordering in, in families and in, in churches is so significant because it sort of matches God's will. And that way, if we're out of line on that, um, it's just shattering. But I think that Jennifer was right to connect uh, that also to empire. Um, and really going back to Dumay's book, uh, sort of this blending of the kingdom of God with America. Um, I think that, I mean, I've heard this kind of rhetoric that, um, you know, if we if we had strong families, you know, that would be lead to like a renewal of America and strong families means um, patriarchal order in families. Um, I think that there's definitely, definitely a connection there. And I think I've long thought that it's problematic um, that our culture um, has become such a focus on the family culture. And I do think that there are idolatries there because in the New Testament vision of the church, the church is not made up of families. The church is a family. And the one new people that God puts together is made up of people who have a stronger connection than um, you know flesh and blood. And um, I think we've been uh, sold a bill of goods with the idolatry of the nuclear family and a throwback to like 50s culture or um, you know how things used to be. That's part of that nostalgia that um, evangelicals have for sort of how things used to be. And um, I think that's highly problematic. Um, just a uh, closing thought here. Um, 
it's very sad to me uh, that we've not fully explored um, from a, a creative posture all that we can be as humans uh, renewed in the image of God, as, as uh, men and women um, that are renewed in the image of God, being male, being female, even being uh, gendered on conforming. Um, within God's kingdom, all are welcome and all are made new. And uh, we've just not put in the creative thinking to explore what all that might look like um, under the gracious reign of the Lord Jesus. Uh, I think about Nate Collins's book, uh, his brilliant book, uh, All But Invisible, which explores some of these things and kind of gets helps to get um, out of the rut um, of um, that I think that so many of us have fallen into with regard to thinking about sexuality. This area of life, you know, gender and sexuality, relations between men and women, um, this area of life is utterly mysterious. And there is the human desire to sort of get control of it. Um, but inevitably there, there are assertions of power. There's the temptation to sort of assert and impose roles that we're all supposed to uh, follow. Um, but that is, that is life sucking. That's not life giving. And um, unfortunately, uh, we haven't been liberated uh, to uh, genuinely explore all that it means to be human in God's good world. Um, hopefully we can... Uh, Turn that around, get some creative thinking going, um, ways to sort of uh, inhabit freedom together and be become welcoming communities uh, that point uh, towards hope and promise and not um, be so oriented by control. Anyway, thanks for um, some good discussion on that. Uh, I was going to mention some of the things that my daughter texted uh, to me, because uh, those also were just really insightful. But um, Christian Dumais' book generated a lot of good discussion. Uh, for me, uh, for some friends, and uh, for um, folks in my family, and I uh, loved it. Jesus and John Wayne, pick it up. You'll dig it. I want to tell you about a book. This is not a paid advertisement. Once again, it's just a super read. It's by Kevin Cruz, who's a historian at Princeton University and a great follow on Twitter. And the book is called One Nation Under God, How Corporate America Invented Christian America. And it's published by Basic Books. I've read loads on the history of American evangelicalism over the last 25 years or so, and very few are as informative and mind-blowing as this one. Many American evangelicals believe that America is a Christian nation, and that's a notion that fuels political involvement, and the drive to return America to its Christian roots, or the thought that that's something that Christians ought to be doing. Cruz shows in detail how this is more or less a fabrication that began in the 30s through the 1950s. He also shows how money played a crucial role in shaping evangelicalism, leading to the pro-capitalist and politically conservative ideologies that largely determine the character of white evangelicalism today. In that crucial era, in the early to mid 20th century, evangelicals were building their Bible colleges and schools and forging networks between churches across the nation, and they needed funding. So they looked to Christian businessmen for money. In return, businessmen wanted their pro-capitalist ideology taught in those schools and in those churches. It's amazing to see the lengths they went to uh, to get their thinking into colleges and evangelical churches, distributing pamphlets, sending materials to pastors, 
Uh, before that time, evangelicals were largely pro-labor and were socially active, um, seeking to relieve the problems that were affecting urban centers in the country. But many businessmen were against Roosevelt's New Deal policies, so they made sure that such policies were portrayed as socialist. And politics and Christianity became muddled uh, during Eisenhower's tenure in the 1950s. He was trying to shore up support um, against communism, and he sought to whip up patriotic fervor. So he established a range of traditions that we still see today. The National Prayer Breakfast, um, the government added the uh, under God to the Pledge of Allegiance. They made the motto, in God we trust, uh, the national uh, official motto. So why are contemporary evangelicals so entirely pro-Republican, pro-capitalist, and conservative? These are not naturally biblical ways of thinking and of living. These, are, these aren't biblical postures necessarily, but the seeds of all of that were sown purposefully earlier in the 20th century. Cruz tells the fascinating story of so many cultural and political dynamics that were up and running during that time um, and that have given evangelicalism its present shape today. These are dynamics and convictions that shape how we envision being Christian and how we read the Bible. So it's important to understand these things so that we can envision being faithfully Christian today and hear the Bible rightly as God's life-giving word to us. So the book is One Nation Under God, How Corporate America Invented Christian America. It's written by Kevin Cruz. Get it from an independent bookstore. Several months ago, Sarah and I were having dinner with our friends Trigg and Kristen Johnson in Holland, Michigan. Trigg is the dean of the chapel there at Hope College, and Kristen is the dean at Western Theological Seminary. And uh, Kristen mentioned that she was doing some research on the origins of the expression, the Great Commission. And what she found was absolutely fascinating to me. It struck a chord uh, with me because if there's any core conviction on the part of evangelical Christians in America, it's that we are called to evangelize. We've heard that our entire lives. That unquestioned impulse has bothered me for some time because there's actually so little support for it in the New Testament, something that is often shocking when I point that out to my students, generating loads of discussion. So I thought I would have a conversation about this with Kristen. She was kind enough to send me a draft of some of the research that she's written up. We talked about it a few days ago. As I mentioned, Kristen is the dean at Western Seminary in Holland, and she began her PhD research at the University of St. Andrews at the same time I did 20 years ago. She's even watched our kids way back in the day. She's written on political theory and theology in her first book published by Cambridge University Press and co-wrote the book, The Justice Calling, published just a few years ago by Brazos Press. I hope you enjoy our conversation as much as I did. I'll have a few thoughts about it afterward. Well, let me ask you first, actually. Um, you made the jump from faculty to administration you, from, uh, to the dark side. And I just <laughs> was wondering, you obviously had to know that it was going to be busy and things were going to change. But uh, I mean, is it far busier than you anticipated? Do you enjoy it more than you anticipated? What are, what are some of the, the changes? Oh, thanks for asking. It's certainly um, been intense. I mean, I think the, the realities related to COVID have added a lot of unexpected layers. Um, but 
overall, it is very meaningful. And it is actually quite related to my research where I, I try to think deeply and carefully about discipleship and Christian formation. And, you know, now I'm doing that kind of on behalf of the seminary. What does it look like to form students who can be equipped to kind of enter the world and um, engage the, the world faithfully with a vision of God and God's kingdom? Um, what does it look like for them offering um, opportunities through their churches and ministries to, to kind of form disciples and shape Christians? So it's different. It's a different manifestation, I guess, kind of a different part of the brain <laughs> to think about. Yeah. Okay, now what does that look like within a curriculum? What does that look like within a faculty? Um, whereas my thoughts before that had probably been more church and ministry focused, um, yeah. but same underlying questions, you know, in a complex cultural moment, what does it look like to live as a faithful disciple and how do we shape, shape others and pass that on? Um, so some underlying questions are, are shared. That's interesting. I mean, it must be really jarring to consider the same ultimate goal of uh, formation and discipleship from a, like a faculty perspective, but then to jump into like an administrator's chair, you're in the same community, knowing the same people with the same goal. Mm. But I mean, the, the challenges must be so different and like the angles from which you actually sort of think at the questions must be mm -hmm. so utterly different. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think, you know, as a faculty member, I was thinking about kind of my courses, my students and my own local church right. and kind of with, you know, with my research head on sort of other others in ministries that are connected to discipleship and formation. Uh, but here you are thinking about a lot of, of different constituencies, you know, the church at large, um, students at large, uh, recruiting, you know, who, who are the students coming to you and how do you draw them in with the vision of the formation they'll receive here? And then, you know, how are you really attentive to, to the formation that's happening throughout the kind of the curricular and co-curricular offerings? Yeah. So, yeah, it's, you know, it's an yeah. Go ahead. I'm so glad that uh, there are people like you doing that kind of work because I have no administrative skills. And I'm grateful <laughs> for the excellent administrators we've got at GRTS, but I, just, mm. I couldn't do it. Well, um, so I wanted to talk to you because we were having dinner, the four of us, uh, some time ago, and you mentioned that you were doing some research on the Great Commission, which I found fascinating. And uh, especially because... Uh, like in biblical theological classes or New Testament courses, when, when I talk about uh, the New Testament vision of the church in the world as a social body that um, enjoys God's blessing, sort of that spills over into the larger community in the forms of mm -hmm. doing good and seeking justice and social reform, etc. cetera. Um, inevitably, that vision from the Gospels, from Acts, from Paul, and the rest of the New Testament mm -hmm. seems to rub up against... Um, the Great Commission, and inevitably that question comes, like, well, what about the Great Commission? As if that's mm -hmm. sort of like trumps the rest of the New Testament's teaching. Um, so anyway, that's why I was really eager to talk to you about this. So um, just to start, like, what got you into this research? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Oh, I'm excited to talk about everything you just named, and it's all very related cool. to what got me into this. So on the one hand, and I'm going further back. I, when I became a Christian in 
early high school, it was through a local church youth group that put a lot of emphasis on discipleship and disciple making. And uh, the Great Commission was quite central to that vision of discipleship, mm-hmm. which I carried with me. Um, and then as I got into college and realized, you know, it's, it's really, I see, all, I see my Christian friends here at this public university and we're struggling to know what this really looks like. You know, what does it look like to follow Jesus and think about our studies and our classmates? And um, so that got me into kind of understanding culture and then eventually theology. And I really think looking back kind of my whole past 20 something decades, 20 something years of life have been asking questions around discipleship. You know, what is, what does it look like to follow Jesus? What are the things we need to be attending to, um, to both be and make disciples? And then, you know, eventually started to see more clearly that things like um, seek first God's kingdom and righteousness in Matthew six really do involve uh, justice um, and kind of being actively engaged in our communities and in the world and proactively seeking sort of what's good and right and just. Um, And so I've done a lot of thinking about sort of how did those, how did, how did certain things come apart that Mm -hmm. I think when we look historically, the early church held together, I think Christians in other times and places have held together more fully than within American Christianity in the past hundred years or so. So I have kind of a historical layer um, of asking those questions. And then also kind of what is so central about the great commission? Where did this term come from? How did it become so central in our thinking about discipleship? And as I started to ask those questions, I realized, wow, this term is a lot more recent than I think most people I've talked to understand. And yet, like you were pointing to, it's become so central very quickly for many Christians instead of, you know, and you think about discipleship, this is sort of the Trump verse. Um, And why is that? And what are the implications of that? Yeah, that's so interesting. Were you surprised by that, by, by it being so recent? Yes, absolutely. So I'm sort of mapping out these different conceptions of discipleship in, a, in kind of a research project and started to think, okay, you know, discipleship as what we, you know, disciple making coming from obviously those verses go and make disciples. You know, how old is this? is this vision of discipleship really? Uh, Where did this come from? And I started kind of tracing the history of that within Christianity, which Mm -hmm. is kind of its own really fascinating story. And it's, it's connected um, to what I'm about to say, but sort of a slightly different thread. So in the midst of that, I thought, well, where did this term come from? I'm so curious about that. And I stumbled across another article by Robbie Castleman who asked the same question. She was preparing a, I think a Bible study and, came across the term and was reading Bible commentaries and none of them addressed that issue. They just used the term and she did some digging and came across one theory um, in a footnote of a book she'd borrowed from a colleague and then she published that. And that became, if you do kind of a Google search, that is all over the internet. The theory that was in her article that she said it may have come from Dutch missionary Justinian von Wells and been popularized by Hudson Taylor in the 19th century. But that's, as I dug deeper, I realized neither of those were true. And I mean, I think she put it forward as a maybe and others sort of took it as a, 
definitely. And, you know, as I looked into each of the figures she names, it became more clear. No, those were not the sources of the term. Um, so you get into all these kind of rabbit trails because it gets you into his, the history of missions and the rise of uh, the modern missionary movement and biblical scholarship and right. um, all these different threads. Um, but ultimately, you know, the first the first imprint uh title I could find or even references from 1842. There's a book called the great commission. It's really, it was a, it was a contest, you know, as yeah, people right. were kind of discovering, um, kind of the, this sort of missionary impulse. Then some, some Christians in the United kingdom, um, said, let's, t- let's put out a contest and, and get people to kind of put forward biblical reasons to support missions. And the great commission was, was offered, um, as a small treatise of 400 and something pages. <laughs> um, but That's even crazy. there, they, like he uses that title, but he doesn't use the term within right. the book. Yeah. Right. Uh, it doesn't, it doesn't get unpacked. So it has these sort of a, scattered appearances throughout the 1800s. And then really seems to turn a corner um, in the early 1900s. Right. And, and is that because of its use in the Schofield Reference Bible? That is my working theory. Yeah. So I kind of have traced down all these different theories that I've seen in print. Many people just say we just don't know and we, and we don't, we won't. Um, but I keep thinking, it's not that old. We've got to be able to <laughs> figure this out. So um, my working theory is that it appears, the term Great Commission appears as a subheading in the 1908 Schofield Reference Bible. And that seems to be the first time it makes its way into a Bible in print. It is in some Bible commentaries by the late 1800s as a term, but not necessarily kind of a definitive. So my sense is that that is what helped popularize the term. And it was, and it kind of, it, it, um, coincides with a number of other um, dynamics going all around in um, American Christianity in particular. Right, like the rise of um, premillennial dispensationalism. Mm-hmm. Yes. And, uh, and it's like, if it's in the Schofield Reference Bible, it's, um, it's important to point out that, like, it's not that that is one Bible available among a number of other study Bibles or whatever. That was such a new mm-hmm. thing and it was so popular and, you know, must have sold millions so that if, if there's a way to sort of inform the mass populace of what is emerging as evangelicalism, I mean, that's the way to mm-hmm. do it. If it's in there, <laughs> yeah. it's in the Bible. Yes. yes. Well, and that's what's so interesting about that Bible because the notes were printed right in there. And as you're pointing out, that was kind of new thing so for christians reading it it was like this is in the bible and this becomes a very definitive interpretation mm-hmm. of the bible even though i mean my conviction looking historically from separate studies on different kind of um millennial forms of thought is that you know it's really quite a minority position within christianity for most of its history kind of premillennialism overall right and then this is a you know then a kind of a more specific interpretation of premillennialism so it's a minority position for quite a long time it's considered a heretical position and then it gets kind of rediscovered in the 1800s ish largely in the united kingdom and then gets imported over to mm-hmm. the us where it really takes off Yep. In fact, I can remember in, in before, I hardly, I hardly knew who N.T. Wright was at the time. This was in 99, 1999. He came through 
um, where I was living and did a couple talks at my church and I got to go to kind of a lunch with him and a dinner and, uh, somehow the topic of kind of American fascination with the end times <laughs> came up and that was the first time he said, you know, I need you to know this is actually a very particular American phenomenon. We really don't have the equivalent. Yeah in the United Kingdom or kind of other places I've, I've spent time. And that was a very eye-opening yeah. comment at the time. I thought, oh, interesting. Yeah. And sort of tucked that away. And, and that is a big part of the story of, you know, the Christianity we've inherited today is, is quite wed to the rise of, of this interpretation of Revelation. Yeah, it would be a, uh, this, oh, well, I would hope that it would be the start of a massive awakening uh, if we just sat with a thought for a while we are an anomaly in the whole story of uh, and like uh, and then to start from there and just start thinking like you know discovering the ways that the ways that we think the ways we think about the bible the ways we think about being christian the ways we think about encountering the world and realize they're not normal relative to uh you know 1900 years of Christian uh, history. but uh, <laughs> yeah i agree and i think that's i mean that's why i love reading yeah you know earlier christians and you know um being really attentive to what you read so you so you can become more aware of your own kind of cultural <laughs> interpretations and formation i mean we haven't really gotten into though kind of what is so significant about that interpretation and its impact should i say a little bit more about that yeah you're welcome yeah totally well actually okay. first of all i want to ask yeah. you about um when this started becoming popular um it was not universally accepted. Like you pointed out that Roland Allen um, mm. raised some objections to this becoming sort of the central driver of mission and evangelism. And mm -hmm. especially, I think it was, I think one of the core objections or questions that you raised was whether evangelism and mission should be based on a command and sort of mm. a danger there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that is one of my deeper underlying questions is what happens when you base the call to mission, evangelism, and discipleship on a command? Mm -hmm. uh, what's the impact of that? And I think that's where, again, looking back historically, it's, I mean, the people that I'm, that I'm studying are saying, hey, the earliest church did not appeal to these closing verses of any of the gospels and Matthew in particular as their motivation for mission. They didn't root. I mean, it was, they're not saying there was no evangelism or mission in the right. early church. They're saying they didn't root it in a command. It was kind of more the, the inevitable outworking of your faith. Right. Like if Christ is Lord of all, you know, Lord of all and King of Kings and savior, like you are, are going to share that and you know evangelize and and put this into action through uh, your way of life, right? And you know, and and I think back then too, you see in the Book of Acts already kind of this really um, seamless interweaving of you could say word and deed or verbal proclamation of the gospel, which we see again and again in Acts, and also real attention to uh, those in need in the community and uh, making sure there were, you know, deacons called, we, you know, we'd say now to, to attend to the physical needs of people in communities. Um, so all of that was, was kind of a, I'd say, you know, the language I would tend to use is sort of the, out of our gratitude for God's grace. Yeah. 
right. you know, you offer your life back and you, you know, kind of put this into action as a whole way of life. Mm-hmm. Um, and it seems like when, um, and you know, when, when they looked at the great, at those verses in Matthew, not yet called the great commission, I mean, they were important verses, but they were looked at for things like, how do we understand the Trinity? Right. Because <laughs> which isn't called the Trinity yet, but you know, like, cause it references Father, Son, and Holy Spirit or, so that would be how Augustine, for example, engaged with those verses or baptism. You know, what, what does this mean for baptism? Um, and, and other, so there's certainly the verses are appealed to, they're just not, understood to be really a live command. They were thought to be filled by the earliest Christians as they moved from Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria. (laughs) You know, that that is nuts. Like thinking about, yeah, thinking about early engagements, reading those, uh, that passage and thinking, well, this is done. That's incredible. Mm -hmm. I know. (laughs) And, you know, I haven't fully entered into that. I mean, I, I can't definitively say, well, it's because they weren't as aware of the, of the world's geography as we are right. today. But that is a factor, right? I mean, there were actually parts of the world that they didn't know existed. Sure. And so I think it was more plausible to think, okay, we've seen this spread far beyond <laughs> its origins. And this is third out. That's what those, those verses were kind of for the original hearers. And they live that out. So yeah. that's where, again, you have this historical shift that in the, you know, 1500s, as the European countries start exploring right. uh, the world around them more fully and then reporting that back, Christians like William Carey start asking, hey, has the gospel really spread all over? Mm. <laughs> you know, right. it seems like there actually are these packets that don't know Jesus Christ and don't have the church. And then what's our responsibility within that? Yeah. And so, you know, there are voices at that point on 1500s onward is the earliest I found saying, I wonder if these parts of our Bible are still live and active. And what's interesting about William Carey is he actually makes that case. There's recordings of it. I mean, written transcripts of it um, to a kind of a Baptist group. And he Hmm. is shot down. They're like, no, these are not live commands. If God doesn't need us to spread his word. I mean, you read it now and you're like, this yeah, is incredible. so different from our thinking, but he really, and then he puts in writing the reasons why these verses ought to still apply, including things like we still baptize. Yeah. We don't consider that. But he doesn't use the term great commission, but he is arguing for that. But question, he does go for the kind of the command theory. Like we, you know, we're commanded right. to do this and kind of, you know, so some of that goes, you know, goes back to his way of putting things that like, we yeah. got to do this because the Bible commands us. Yeah, to. it's, um, I mean, there's the, the emphasis on go and then uh, I'm, I'm just, mm. I mean, I, there's that Keith Green song. I remember listening to that in high school and college, you know, Jesus commands us to go and whatever the church wants to stay. I mean, he was all fiery, um, mm. passionate, but, um, it's just so interesting that uh, just from a new, like a, a new Testament perspective, 
Um, that's, I don't know. I mean, a larger, taking a larger view, the go part has driven mission, overseas mission, international mission. Um, it, do, it doesn't seem like many of the rest of the elements of the passage have had as much of an impact, uh. like, you know, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you, which is, uh. you know, all the teaching in Matthew, which is formed communities of doing good and seeking justice and enacting kingdom life. But we've sort of just uh-huh. we've sort of just understood it as going to places and making converts, which is we've uh-huh. sort of proceeded onto discipleship, which is unfortunate. Uh-huh. Yes, I have a lot, a lot to say. Oh, I'd love to hear it. Um, okay, on the one hand, I think there's some pretty interesting biblical scholarship that is look looking really closely at the grammar of those. And, you know, some would even go as far as to say it's, it's not even actually meant to be go. It's, it's more as you go. (laughs) Uh Uh-huh. And then, and that make disciples is actually the most prominent verb. Mm -hmm. And even, even the other ones that follow are kind of sub, (laughs) sub verbs. I, you, you would know the technical term. Um, There seem to be some reasons that we've some reasons that go was emphasized in some of the early translations that maybe as our interpretations and understandings of the Greek have have nuanced that a bit. Um, But even among those who, you know, I think in some sense, I I don't, well, I still, I think even those I, I read who really think, okay, let's nuance our interpretation still would say it's good sure it's good to share our faith you know so they're not they're not going sort of that far um but then the question is what Mm -hmm. what is the content of that right even as we go what is it that we're that we're doing in the making disciples part i think that's where that the premillennial dispensationalism piece becomes quite interesting because you know i want to honor that they were trying to faithfully interpret the word of God. And they believed that Jesus was going to return to earth in a very dramatic way. And that if you did, had not received Jesus as Lord and savior, that your eternal life was on the line. And the way they interpreted Jesus' return, it was that it would be, he would, he would, you know, at some point, you know, there's that we would be removed from this Mm -hmm. earth. Right, that's the the Dwight Moody kind of who w- would say in some of his messages, "This earth is a sinking ship, and my calling is to get as many people into lifeboats right. yeah. as possible." So it's very consistent within their thinking that the, there was genuine mm-hmm. urgency, like we want as many people to know the love of God as possible and to get in those lifeboats. You know the the perhaps unintended consequence, if we're being as generous as possible, is that it shifted all of their focus onto the personal conversion of, uh, you know, of each person they encountered because the world was needed to get worse and worse. That was actually an indication of Christ's return. So, you know, historians of American Christianity have coined a term, the great reversal, which involves what? Because which involves the movement of Christians away from engaging with oh, cultural, political, and social realities. So they would say that 
for kind of the great awakening onwards, there was a synthesis. Christians who cared about evangelism and revival also cared about social causes and social engagement and viewed those pretty seamlessly, as I would look back and say the earliest Christians in Acts mm -hmm. and onwards did. Um, and, you know, and I mean, there are even stories about, you know, one revivalist, I can't remember exactly which one, but, you know, if you kind of came forward for your altar call, then they asked you to you know, really consider becoming an abolitionist yeah. as a next step, <laughs> you know, there, you know, that the, that was not a kind of shocking blend, um, at that time. But as these different understandings of, uh, Christ's return became more and more prominent, this idea that kind of the world's going to get worse and what we need to focus on is people's individual salvation. Then, then the motivation to be engaged in political and cultural realities really lessened because what good was it going to do anyway? And what we, what we needed to put all our energy into was kind of that personal mm -hmm. conversion. So that shaped how that verse in particular was, or those verses were interpreted and I mean, there are a few other things that could be added about kind of the social changes going on and some genuinely worrisome thought coming, coming into American Christianity that, that people were concerned about that also led them to kind of hunker down on, on evangelism yeah. over social engagement. I can say more Go about that it. if you're interested, but you yeah, may have other do. things. Okay. Um, so part of the issue is that, that America was going through huge change in the late uh, 1800s, early 1900s. Uh, people were moving into cities. It was the rise of industrialization and factories and our whole kind of way of life was shifting. And some Christians really saw the problems going on in our cities and thought, what are we going to do about this as Christians? And um, I would say it's, I don't know, this might be too strong, but historical accident that the, the group that kind of led the way in saying, how are we going to care about these urban problems was simultaneously accepting kind of scholarship coming over from Europe that was really questioning core right, Christian doctrines. Yeah. And it prompted them to say, okay, we're going to focus on kind of social issues. We don't think for, for many of them that kind of individual sin or individual salvation is really the core, the core is sin as it manifests itself right. socially. And so to respond to it, we need social engagement. That's what we call the right. social gospel now. And in response, kind of more traditional Christians were saying, wow, that's, you know, I think pretty, pretty right. different than, you know, some of the core. And so they had, there's a sort of layer of premillennial dispensationalism, this layer of sort of genuine shifts in the culture and genuine shifts in interpretations of the Bible and sort of core Christian doctrines and, and, and the rise of the holiness movement is in there too, which tended to emphasize kind of more individualistic, what we call baby pietistic behaviors, like, you know, a youth group talk, even though they didn't have youth groups back then, but sort of a, a youth talk would be like, what do you want Jesus to find you doing oh, totally. when you return? And it would be like, you don't want yeah, him to find right. you drinking. You don't want him to find you dancing. Don't play cards, right? More kind yeah. of individualistic, pietistic behaviors. I mean, there would be equal biblical precedent to say, you want him to find you right. serving the poor. <laughs> you want him to find you, you know, but that just that way of kind of, of interpretation 
wasn't part of that particular movement. So these things kind of coalesce so that Christians who were concerned about preserving certain things, like each of our need for Jesus ended up rejecting social involvement to, to kind of differentiate themselves from kind of these social gospel um, adherents. So it, it, it introduced this rupture that they could kind of biblically made sense to them and um, was kind of a response to these larger shifts that ended up, you know, and I, I just, you know, I try to be really empathetic because as we know, maybe for right now, like cultural yep. change is hard and there is fear. And, and I do think, I do think personal knowledge of Jesus is important. <laughs> and I, I think we can hold that together with a strong call throughout the Bible um, to seek justice and um, care for, for those outside of church walls. And um, there are a lot of other ways of putting that. So I think they can be held together, but at that time they were rendered apart. And then that really shaped. Yeah, I mean, it's it's uh, so crucial to understand that historical context because I know across and, and, you know, with all the recent social upheaval, um, you know, so Mm -hmm. many white evangelical Christian people um, sort of, you know, well-meaning, I think they feel like they want to do something or have a, uh, some way of contributing. But for generations now, we've just had no framework because for mm-hmm. several generations of uh, white evangelicalism, um, genuine care for the gospel has been completely sundered from social engagement so that we haven't been talking about it or it hasn't been a routine practice. So in a moment of crisis, we just have mm-hmm. nothing to go to except for you know, warm feelings or expressions of sympathy or whatever. Mm-hmm. Promises that will pray. Mm-hmm. I don't know. But it's sad that these two mm-hmm. elements have been turned against each other. Yeah, yeah. Right, because, I mean, the tragedy is we do we have resources within Scripture and yes. our tradition. But you're right, because we, we haven't, depending on your strand, within kind of white evangelicalism, most of us didn't right. didn't know what they were and so it leads to kind of a at times a rejection um because you're you sense something's right. off right and you you know and they're we're genuine um awareness awareness of global injustice and local injustice and wanting to do something about that and trying to understand why don't why aren't we doing anything about that because you said a bit ago um I mean, both at the beginning, but then more recently, kind of the, you know, the Great Commission is sort of held up as, well, what about this? And then, you know, how do we hold, how do we understand that these verses at the end of Matthew are the culmination of a Mm -hmm. whole gospel and one part of a larger biblical story? And so that's really where I would want to end is like, let's take all of the yeah. Bible seriously. But to do that, we need to place them in context. Like what Jesus says, make disciples and teach them to obey everything I've commanded. That's referencing both everything that precedes those verses in the book of Matthew and like, you know, everything that precedes it in the yeah. biblical story. Because the first Christians understood that they were part of the yeah. people of Israel and they inherited that whole narrative. So that's why, you know, in my second book, the justice calling, what my co-author and I were trying to do is say, Hey, we have this whole passion for justice emerging, 
we don't all know how to wed that to mm-hmm. our faith and our understanding of the Bible because we haven't, because we inherited this divided yep. history. But hey, if you immerse yourself in the biblical story, which is what we do over the course of the book from Genesis to Revelation, it is there right. at, from day one, Absolutely. from day one of creation. You know, onwards, like this is part of God's vision. And we can wed this all together. Yeah, it's there. Because it is wedded together. But we need to think, because oh. <laughs> it is. It's wedded together in God. And we're the people of God, totally. you know, so it's should, it's supposed to be wedded together in us as well. So I want to go back uh, just because mm-hmm. I think that at the sort of experiential level, this is where so much so much great commission um, rhetoric or, you know, the um, emphasis as far as, you know, teaching in churches uh, falls. But um, from your perspective, you know, from sort of a close, if we narrow in things a little bit, um, to consider formation, which is what you do a lot of. Um, mm, what are mm-hmm. some of the effects of, um, you know, relying on uh, a command to drive mission evangelism? Mm. I'm just thinking, I mean, could that be uh, malforming, like um, lead to manipulation or guilt or pressure? Mm. Here, it's hard for me not to speak out of my well, own yeah, story. So I'll do that for a bit. It, um, I I took a I <laughs> how to get into it. Um, I spent I think the first probably decade of my Christian life really living taking all the commands yeah. very seriously, <laughs> and I, you know, and I, I I think the Spirit used it and. Um, shaped me and and I have to be honest and I've gone back to some people and kind of apologized for some of my pastors that they've been like I, I think God really used that yeah. in my life you know so I like my overall thesis is this the Holy Spirit is bigger and can both work despite me and through me even when so you were I like a young doing idealist it, you know all perfectly but yeah I was a young idealist and I was taught like go and make disciples and it had a very specific model um, rooted in the example of Jesus, investing in 12 and especially mm-hmm. three disciples. And that's what we were taught it meant to be and make disciples. And so I was always investing in kind of smaller groups of, of women and girls. Well, I guess at the time, sort of um, junior high and high school and then college um, disciples and trying to build them up and send them out to, to do the same. And um, I think what I realized ultimately is that, I mean, at some point I was simply exhausted and I really thought that my relationship with God kind of depended on my Mm -hmm. activity. So it was like, as I had my daily quiet time, which I was also quite committed to. And as I did evangelism and discipleship, kind of that's what God was asking of me. And that's sort of how I proved myself to God really. And I think through my further theological studies, uh, thanks be to God, I discovered the Trinity mm-hmm. and discovered that, you know, actually, when you look closely at Paul, we're already adopted. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, you know, it's kind of the whole point. And so to me, it's kind of the shift. Like when it's a command, it's quite easy for us to make mm-hmm. it if you do this, then <laughs> performative. And I had to realize I had the whole thing reversed. I don't think anything I was doing was in and of itself bad or <laughs> unbiblical, but it was, it was the opposite order. And I missed the gift. <laughs> like the gift is you're, you are my beloved mm-hmm. people. Therefore, mm-hmm. 
And that actually goes all the way back to God's covenant relationship with Israel. I mean, it's like not, out of nothing that you have earned or done, Abraham, I am calling you and you will be my people and I will be your God and I will give you the law. And the law is actually not something you have to follow to be my people. I've already made a covenant yeah, with you. Right. <laughs> you are now, there are consequences if you don't live according to this way of life, because it's what I've designed for you. You know, it will have an impact on you, but it's not, even Israel wasn't earning their way into God's people. And then Jesus, as sort of a fulfiller of the covenant, then makes it kind of more universally available. Like, we now get to be invited into God's people by Jesus and through the power of the Spirit. And then as we receive that gift... We, we hopefully, right, want to be grateful. And out of that gratitude, we offer our lives back to God. You know, kind of Romans, like offer your lives. Um, and so it's, it's just, it's a really different posture. And I think both pragmatically, you hope would be more winsome. Yeah. <laughs> you know, if you're really thinking about how you kind of draw people in, it's, you know, you hope it's more winsome if it's sort of an overflow of our gratitude for our life with God and as a member of God's family um there's a sort of a you want to share it you want to draw people in because this is beautiful and this is kind of who we were created and redeemed to be yeah that's what i was um as i was reading um what you had written up i was just thinking about um times in youth group or when i was in college um you know i mean pastors always are working with a reservoir of guilt I mean, either for prayer mm. or evangelism. And they can, like, anytime they want to talk on those mm. two things, it's like, we all have so much guilt that we're not doing enough or doing it as consistently. And mm. um, just so many messages that I had heard that this was my responsibility, that you need to be, uh, you know, my high school, my public high school is my mission field, and, you know, I'm responsible for all mm-hmm. these people. Mm-hmm. I mean, that is so misshaping and malforming. Mm. Uh, you know, it, it, and it, it comes out in so many different ways, either the way that I relate to people that are in my life, or as you noted, um, just the way that I see myself in relation to God, I can't sort of see myself as beloved and then work from that on that scenario. Mm-hmm. I, I sort of see myself as, you know, having joined this thing and now I've got tasks I got to do. I've got these responsibilities mm-hmm. that I'm going to be checked up on, you know, by the, God's foreman or something like that. Yeah, yeah, it's very weighty. I mean, it's on the one hand, I, I get pragmatically it's motivating, right? The kind of you may be the only yeah. Jesus people ever see or the only Bible people ever read. It's like this motivating, like, okay, I got to do, I got to take this really seriously. And I do believe we're called to a very active faith. So I want whatever we offer to be motivating to live into this calling we've received from God. But it's too weighty. I mean, Jesus says, my burden yeah. is light. And so it just has to be different. And, um, and I think biblically, it's just, it's just not there. Um, it's, it's, it's very active, and even, you know, kind of the calls to seek justice, which again was, was a very oh, action oriented calling, you know, it's all through the Bible, but it's much more identity yeah. based. I mean, it's, and that's, I mean, for me, honestly, reading Isaiah devotionally after I graduated from college really rocked 
my framework because I was like, this is all about justice and righteousness. And I have no way to make sense of this in my Christian upbringing. And I've been a leader in college ministries and I've never heard about any of this. But what struck me about Isaiah is it seemed so consistently God saying, I am a God who seeks justice and righteousness. You as my people are supposed to seek the things I care about and you're not. And that's why Isaiah is offering these words of condemnation. So last thing. Okay. Okay. Um, You mentioned this and I just been thinking about this a lot Mm -hmm. lately. You um, kind of tie together an emphasis on, on the Great Commission with the rise of parachurch organizations. What's the link that you see there? Mm-hmm. Oh, great question. Okay, so if the early 1900s, you have this sort of new, um, newish missionary zeal linked to the rise of these understandings of salvation and the, the real need to evangelize understood as personal conversion linked to the rise of the Great Commission. Those were not entirely, but initially Mm. kind of missionary focused, understood as helping to send people elsewhere. Um, The go, as you said earlier. So you then have kind of this wave of Christians in the U.S. who say, hey, this Great Commission applies here too. So how are we? helping to fulfill the Great Commission. And part of it is, I mean, people really thought, you know, the student volunteer movement was the early 1900s, that we could evangelize, we could fulfill the Great Commission in our generation. That was kind of became this galvanizing um, phrase and kind of way of thinking. So so then there was sort of a sense of like, well, what about kind of right where we are? So the parachurch movement that arose really in the U.S. um, in the you know, mm-hmm. I don't know, uh, 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s, um, maybe a little bit more 30s, 40s, 50s. Um, you've got um, kind of Before Rising Out of Time Navigators, um, Campus Crusade, I believe, is around that time, um, Youth for Christ. Their mission was their motive as well. Kind of this is what we're, we're called to do. And, and I think that the local churches weren't doing it, that they weren't um, offering the evangelism and even kind of ongoing discipleship that was needed. And, I, you know, I think they are, we, the history of Sunday school is another really fascinating sure. piece that we're not, we can't get into right now, but it's related. Uh, but I think there's a sense of like, there's sort of Sunday school and there's Sunday morning church, and maybe that's mm-hmm. not quite enough for kind of this, this zeal. So, um, so they, they were all motivated by the Great Commission and um, in trying to understand what that looked like. And I think that's really what shaped discipleship in the U.S. context in the 1900s, because a lot of discipleship language was linked to these parachurch ministries. And so how they conceptualized, conceptualized discipleship kind of trickled down then into local churches. And that's where I think the roots really do matter because I think, again, I want to honor their motives and their genuine desire to see people know the love of God. But is perhaps some of the reason Mm -hmm. that today we're struggling within American evangelicalism linked to these roots, that it was such a specific picture of salvation with such an emphasis on personal conversion that we didn't know how to make sense of certain things. Like even why does local church matter? Why does our worshiping life matter? Do the sacraments shape us? 
or things like vocation, like our, you know, the faith and work movement, I think is a response to this. Like, don't our, don't our callings matter? (laughs) Can they do something for God beyond a a place to meet non-Christians? You know, can that work contribute? And I think even our ability to recognize institutions and structures is impacted because it's such an individualistic lens kind of who are you investing in who are you either helping to convert or helping to disciple that even even the existence of structures becomes a bit harder to see but also and this is where kind of my thinking and speaking about this often ends is you know what if we understand the great commission as not just go to other geographic places but right where we are in the communities where we live, what if we're forming Christians mm-hmm. who can seek God's kingdom yeah. within all of their callings? And, and that would transform yeah. a city, a town, a place. You know, if we really could pass on that robust vision of discipleship uh, that's connected to your passions and your gifts, you know, that, you know, and I can talk about this again for, for longer than we have, but I think this idea that we ought to be in our local churches, empowering our Christians to seek God and God's kingdom and embody that right where they are in, in vocational and community and structural ways. Yeah. If we um, really matters, had that sort of a vision, I mean, certainly the way that uh, Christians respond, you know, to black lives matter would have been quite different. I mean, that, I think many of us would have seen like this is our issue. Mm-hmm. This is our to go at and understand and discern mm. and call out structural corruptions is what we're all about. But I, I just we just didn't have the tools, the ideological mm-hmm. tools uh, to work with. I know, and it's not just. I mean, to be sure, honest, it's right. not just Christians. I mean, culture. I my I was this. You know, my background is in sociology before theology. So culture is a, it's actually meant to be mm-hmm. invisible. It's meant to be a kind of a shaping force that holds a people in place to get, at least within modern culture, institutions are part of that kind of invisible reality. They shape and frame our lives, but we really don't spend a lot of time right. thinking about institutions, how they shape and frame our lives. So part of what I'm always trying to do is help people to see yeah. these realities overall. Like, who are you close to in your life? We tend to think kind of relationally and individually, but how do you know those people? Well, it's often yeah. mediated by an institution, <laughs> you know, a college, a school, a church, a workplace, a family, right? Our lives are mediated by institutions. And then I think it's easier to see that than how those institutions are structured or who those particular institutions enable us to encounter oh, yeah. or be shaped oh, by or be mentored by really has an impact. And correspondingly, if you don't have access to robust flourishing institutions, mm-hmm. that really has an impact. So that it's not, uh, it's not yeah. either or. It's not like either I care about the individual person or I recognize kind of systemic challenges. <laughs> but that actually as Christians, if anyone is not flourishing according to God's vision, we right. have a calling to care about that exactly. and to do something about that. Right where we are. Gosh, Kristen, this is so fascinating. And I, I think your research is so important. Where, are you thinking of publishing this piece anywhere? Well, it's a great question. I mean, I have kind of a short draft version that you've read. And it's, you know, hopefully someday part of a larger book project. Um, but, yeah, we'll have to see how that all unfolds with oh, the other callings God has yeah, for me right now. Imagine. Life is absolutely <laughs> nuts for everybody, especially people that are anticipating to start a school here uh, shortly. 
Well, Kristen, mm-hmm. thank you for taking the time. I really appreciate it. All right. Oh, it's good been luck a on the pleasure. Thank year. you for the invitation. All right. Take care, Thank you. Likewise. God bless. Well, big thanks to Kristen for taking the time to talk with me. I really appreciate it. I do apologize for uh, the audio. It was not great. And I think that my voice and Kristen's were not linked up properly. Whatever. Hope you got the gist of that. Um, Had to do a little bit of editing to clean it up. Um, but just oh, so fascinating thinking about the the outsized place that the Great Commission has played in so much of our thinking. Uh, that has got to change because I think it it keeps us from seeing the larger vision of what the church is supposed to be, as uh, Kristen noted. Um, one of the other things I took away from that, uh, I'll be pondering this all week and maybe have some more thoughts uh, next week, but it's really a massive tragedy that conservative evangelicals have so demonized the social gospel movement. And today we see that same demonization um, uh, happening with the movement for social justice, which is what the kingdom of God is supposed to be about. I mean, uh, God wants his people to be a people of justice in the social sphere, God's justice, not some uh, Western uh, vision of justice. Um, So many other thoughts there about how the individualistic gospel prevents us from seeing structural and systemic and institutional realities. Certainly, we're seeing that uh, in so many of the discussions that are up and running in our day. And no doubt, there will be loads of other questions that are raised by what uh, we talked about and what Kristen had to say in sharing her uh, research. You're welcome to email me. We'd love to keep the conversation going. It's a crazy world out there right now. So much stuff going on, but it's still a beautiful day. Don't let it get away.